0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We are talking with the producer and director of an important uh, film, Dying in Vain, The Opiate Generation. Dying in Vain is a deeply personal exploration of opiate and heroin addiction through a cinema verite style that drops you directly into the lives of an addict in recovery. A couple try to get clean a family grieving the loss of their son, and an emergency room physician trying to save one patient at a time. Through these stories, the film explores the contemporary belief of living life pain-free, the shame and blame that exists around addiction, the impact of socioeconomic class on our broken treatment system, and how a group of emergency care physicians are working to save their patients from the opiate uh, crisis. And uh, we are talking with Jenny McKenzie, who is the uh, producer and director of the film, who joins us from KCBD's, KCBW studios in Salt Lake City. Jenny, welcome to the conversation.
1: Thank you so much, Tom.
0: We also have from KCBW studios, uh, Maddie, who is uh, one of the uh, subjects of the film. Uh, Welcome to the program.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: And in studios here in uh, Logan, we have Kristen Munson, a UPR reporter, lead reporter on an upcoming series, UPR produced a series called A State of Addiction.
3: They, thanks for having me here, Tom.
0: And uh, a couple of events I want to plug uh, before we get in. We'll be plugging throughout the uh, program here uh, with this original series, UPR original series, "The State of Addiction: Utah's Opioid e- Epidemic." Um, the uh, members of the team will be hosting a number of outreach events around Utah. These are in Moab, Price, and Vernal. On October third, uh, fourth, and fifth, um, and uh, that's uh, today, tomorrow, and the next day. We're airing this on Tuesday, and uh, there will be screening at each of those events of "Dying in Vain," the Opiate Generation, followed by Q and A with a panel of local experts. I believe uh, Jenny McKenzie you'll be you'll be on this tour.
1: I will, and so will Maddie.
0: Oh, Maddie will be on the tour as well. Great. Um, so that is uh, this evening in Moab, um, Wednesday um, in at uh, USU Eastern in Price, and then on uh, Thursday at the U.N.A. County Library in Vernal. And then uh, you all be returning, at least several of you, to uh, to be uh, a part of events in Logan, and that'll be at the Block Film and Art Festival, and then a screening of the uh, film. That's at the Lyric Theater. The screening is 7 uh, p.m. Um, so, want to want to jump in here? Why don't we let's hear a clip from the from the film to kind of set this up. Um, and this is clip number one. This is uh, some physicians. Kind of, I think these are all emergency room physicians, Jenny, and they're they're uh, they're talking about the problem. So let's uh, let's hear this.
4: In the 1990s, the measurement of pain became what we call the fifth vital sign. In other words, we had to ask every patient about what their pain level is. So not only were we required to measure pain, it turns out that if we are rated highly by our patients on addressing their pain, there's a positive feedback cycle. It's a system with perverse incentives. And if we're rated low, it not only affects our reputation, but it's directly tied to reimbursement. And it is the direct result of pharmaceutical companies pushing these medications in areas where we didn't have good science. And unfortunately, a lot of people bought. A lot of institutions bought. We all bought that
1: life should be without an ounce of pain. And if there is pain, we take a pill.
4: When we have more prescriptions, we have more addictions. When we have more addictions, we have more overdoses. When we have more overdoses, we have more deaths. That's the way it's gonna go.
2: There's not a single solitary shift that goes by that I don't see somebody who is affected by narcotics. Whether it's the housewife, whether it's the person who's living on the streets, there's prescription pain pills, there's heroin, it's awful. I know personally seven physicians who have heroin-addicted children. I know four physicians whose children have died of heroin overdoses in Salt Lake City. That's not okay.
4: We talk about how it's everywhere. It's been everywhere, but it's just gotten so much bigger. In the CDC, the most recent heroin stats it's you know, in the last, I think since 2010, 300% were up on heroin overdose deaths.
1: This is not getting better. This is going to get way worse before it gets any better. And it is every segment of society. It's men, women, kids. You got money, you got no money. You got insurance, you got no insurance. I mean, it's everybody.
0: So uh, Jenny McKenzie, the subtitle of the film, The Opiate Generation, that indicates a, a big problem, really big problem. And that the, the statistics you, the, the people are throwing out in the film uh, would, would back that up. Uh, I guess that was one of the impetuses for doing this film?
1: Absolutely. It was one of the impetuses. And addiction is a very personal issue for me. And my daughter in high school began misusing prescription opiates after a high school soccer injury, her third one. So we experienced it firsthand. And then I think diving into the research and talking to people in our own community, you hear it very articulately shared by these physicians. But it is a giant public health issue really across our country. We share one of these statistics at the end of the film, but the United States comprises 5% of the world's population. And we consume eighty percent of the world's opioid supply, so that is deeply alarming to me as a mother, as a uh, filmmaker, and really as a storyteller.
0: I want to turn to Maddie. Um, y- your your story is told in the in the film. You and your your then girlfriend Paige um, mm-hmm. really really drew, drew me in, and I you know was concern for you. I'm happy. (laughs) I I think you're doing well now.
2: Yeah, I'm doing great.
0: Um, So uh, how did you get into how did you get into drugs?
2: Well, um, I was in high school and I just was hanging around the party crowd and I was actually dating a boy at the time who had been through rehab. He was older than me and he had OxyContin one night and I just I just didn't know what it was. I, I thought it was just some pill that I didn't you know I didn't understand that it was some dangerous thing you know I didn't know the Oxycontin was basically synthetic heroin and so at the time what I saw as harmless recreational experimentation um, really just kind of threw me into this this cycle of wanting it and craving it and having fun when I was using it and it just progressed over time until it was you know I wasn't capable of really handling it and um, it's so expensive that I then switched to heroin.
0: So heroin was less expensive.
2: Yes, less expensive yeah. by far.
0: Yeah. Did you uh, OxyContin? This this is uh, this um, prescription, right? Did that enter into your thinking that this is maybe more okay than than if you'd considered heroin?
2: Definitely. I mean, at the time, I I think that if somebody was like, "Hey, do you want to try heroin?" I would have said no. Because we think of heroin as this bad, scary thing, but you know, it was just this pill, and it was prescribed by a doctor. And even though it wasn't prescribed to me, I just—you're right—in my mind, I just didn't think of it as bad as heroin.
0: Uh, I'll turn back to Jenny. Um, This—this seems this—this confluence. This seems to be somewhat new, does it? Where where people get into? You know, we we. Um, think that we have to control pain to maybe a greater degree than we did before. Doctors have felt that way. It come up on their evaluations. It come up you know, satisfaction. Um, so they feel the need to maybe prescribe more pain medications, and then that that can lead to, to heroin and other drugs.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think this really shifted in the 1990s and early 2000s when, as one of our physicians, Dr. Todd Allen mentions that there was uh, the pain scale that came really was pushed from big pharmaceutical companies and long-lasting OxyContin was falsely marketed. And physicians really were the middlemen and women and bringing these medications to patients And I think most of them really unknowingly uh, had this information that came from several big pharmaceutical companies. And so I think we began to think about pain very differently because, as they say, pain was really the fifth vital sign. So you would go see a doctor, and you would go see a doctor for a cold or a pneumonia or a sprained ankle or a kidney stone, and you were asked to rate your pain. And so the consumption of prescription opioids in the 1990s to the end of the 2000s just skyrocketed in terms of the numbers of prescriptions that were written. And so then you also had them on the street.
0: Uh, Maddie, I wonder, um, there's a lot of different perspectives in the film as to the, kind of the backgrounds. And, and we heard earlier from the clip that they're, it's all demographics, all, you mm-hmm. know, all socioeconomic uh, backgrounds. I think you say in the film, you, you didn't come from a, a family that, uh, I guess the stereotype is, you know, broken home or mm-hmm. extreme problems. And that's why we get into drugs. Uh, what was your family background?
2: Yeah, I mean, I had a wonderful childhood, and I was I was blessed. I have parents who love me. I have brothers who love me. So yeah, I think that that's thinking that um, that I want to try and help people challenge, which is that you know somebody has to have this big traumatic event or something that's morally wrong with them or some you know like you said a broken home that that causes the addiction and. You know, I was actually looking up statistics recently about addiction and heroin addiction just you know, because I have my experience, but I want to learn more about scientific evidence and what's really going on in terms of the numbers. And I read that I think it's 25% of heroin addicts or heroin users become addicted. And so that to me makes me think, well, you know, what about the the other three fourths? And I think that that's where it brings in the idea of that this is a genetic brain disease and, and people are more susceptible because of their genes. And it, it's really not about what's going on externally, although I think that that does come into play. And so it gets really convoluted and confusing. But um, you know, my passion is helping educate people about what's going on with the brain and about um, looking at this in terms of a disease. And I think that that's Jenny's goal too. I mean, our, our punchline is addiction is a, d- a disease, talk about it. And, um, and so yeah, I think there are definitely times in my life where I had something that happened. Um, like when I was 18, I had a traumatic event happen. And that definitely fueled my use, but I don't believe that that's why I'm an addict.
0: Hmm. There's a there's scene in the film, Jenny, I'm not sure, exact, I can't remember exactly if this comes up here. You're on the phone with your father, and mm-hmm. um, it sounds like you still had a good relationship with your your father. They had set some ground rules. They had cut off all money except for therapy, right? And, yeah. Um, and you said um, addiction is stronger than a mother's love or a father's love.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, looking back at that, I, I'm— It's funny because when I watch the film, I'm like, wow, you know, I have a different perspective. But I still I still believe that. I mean, it's not like I didn't love my parents enough or that they didn't love me enough. It was just that I was dealing with something that's so strong, you know, and um, I mean, you can meet so many addicts that have kids or, you know, parents that love their kids so much and addiction still exists and so we really have to look at it as not a lack of love or a lack of um, it, you know I don't, I don't know exactly but it's you know something that we need to to face in terms of like what's really going on in the brain and how can we get funding for people so they can get the resources they need in order to get well
1: I think Maddie said it so well Tom which is really the biggest risk factor is genetic history and, and family history, and looking at other risk factors, clearly poverty, clearly trauma can be issues that impact mm-hmm. people who are suffering from addiction. But Sarah Finney said actually at a screening that we recently had, and she's the private therapeutic um, consultant that worked with Maddie and her family, said that Maddie's parents are really the heroes because they were able to support her and love her. But set limits, and you know, set those boundaries, and that really, I think, helped her to separate and hopefully, eventually, get well.
0: Yep. I want to follow up on that with with Maddie uh, first. Um, is that what families? That what you su- suggest? Um, set limits, mm-hmm. but what? Still keep the contacts, keep the keep the loving relationship. What What should uh, parents and families do?
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess I have an opinion, but, like, the first thing that that I always like to tell people is, I think it's, I mean, I can't even imagine what my parents went through at that time, like, having to cut me off knowing that I might die and then the guilt that they might have as a result of any action that they took. And so, yeah, I think it's really just doing your own work and figuring out what works best for you, you know, like, um, I I wouldn't, you know, recommend giving your addict money or, you know, um, helping them support their addiction, but... I, I think it looks different for everyone and I definitely think my parents could be an example in that way You know, they they loved me. They set me up with a therapist. They set me up with Sarah who um, You know offered treat treatment for me when I was ready and so they loved Maddie, but they did not support the addiction
0: well, Let's take a brief break when we come back more with uh, Jenny McKenzie with her film dying in vain the opiate generation also with uh, with Maddie, um, who is uh, one of the subjects of the film. Uh, They're joining us from KCBW Studios in uh, Salt Lake City. And uh, just before we go to break, I want to turn to Kristen Munson, who is our lead reporter on our series, UPR original series, A State of Addiction, Um, and uh, Utah's opioid epidemic. What are some of the, I think you've you've already got some interviews in the can, you've got some things prepared, what uh, sorts of uh, sub-subjects are you looking at in this broad topic? We need to get her uh, uh, microphone on. There we go.
3: So we really wanted to take a public health approach to this problem because as we all kind of realizing that this is a nationwide problem, it's a Utah problem, and there's evidence where you can, prevention is a really big part of this, so is treatment. And so we also wanted to look at what are some of the things that we're doing in our state to to basically educate both prescribers but also patients. What are we doing to help families? Um, and, like, what does, what does good treatment look like and what are some of the barriers that exist for people in rural areas versus some of their, our urban areas where there are a little bit more resources? Um, and what are some of the different pathways forward for people So we have one segment that's looking at at drug courts, which are um, specialty courts that allow um, people to, sometimes it's like the only way these people can get treatment is is the pathway through the drug courts. And um, a lot of them are showing some pretty good successes with it. So it's just, um, it's a 13 part series and we're trying to look at prevention efforts, Um, What are some of the interventions happening and the different pathways forward?
0: Excellent. We'll we'll, uh, listen for those. And uh, that series on Utah Public Radio uh, begins a week from today on on Tuesday the 9th. Uh, Let's take a brief break now. We're back with Access Utah. Tom Tom Williams. We are talking with Jenny McKenzie. We're talking about her important new film, Dying in Vain, The Opiate Generation. And uh, she's joining us from KCPW Studios in Salt Lake City. Also in the KCPW Studios is Maddie, who's the subject of the uh, film. And we have with us in our UPR studios here, Kristen Munson, who is lead reporter on the UPR original series, um, um, A State of Addiction. Um, the opioid epidemic and uh, the first in that series begins a week from today um, on uh, on tuesday the 9th Uh, in the meantime upr will be uh, going on tour there'll be screenings in moab uh, price and vernal of dying in vain jenny mckenzie will be there panels of experts in each of those towns will uh, will be there and uh, here's information so today at the historic star hall in moab uh, tomorrow, the Jennifer Levitt Student Center Multipurpose Room on the USU Eastern Campus in Price, and October 5th on Thursday, UNA County Library in Vernal. And each event follows the same schedule, 5 p.m. Open House, Ice Cream Social, 6 p.m. Screening of Dying in Vain, and then around seven ten p.m. Q&A with the panel of experts. And I think I heard, uh, Maddie, you're going on tour as well. Yes, I will be there. Uh, let's see, we'll get to your her microphone here. Uh, so you'll be on tour as well?
2: Yes, I will be there.
0: Okay, Great. Um so I wanted to um want to uh, uh, hear another uh, clip from the film and uh, this is uh, Matt. Um so this is uh, clip number 2.
5: My story is not like some where there's, you know, these huge traumas and dramatic things. I remember just coming out and being like my parents are getting divorced and I don't know what to do. So much of my process of getting well was looking back at that and trying to, like, what was happening with me at the time. And I I just didn't really know, and I didn't have the tools to understand. Just the way I internalized it and how it was relative to my life was really devastating. About two weeks before I went into treatment, I was arrested. That was kind of a big breaking point. So I went to jail, and I it was... It was just so terrible, I was so dope sick. It's like this primal distress of the soul. And that's part of what keeps people sick too because you use the drugs to cover up what's going on beneath the emotional stuff, but at the same time, even when you're not high, you're so distressed that you don't think about your emotional stuff anyway. So whether you're feeling bad or good, it's all focused around getting getting your drug. Ended up getting booked and released Since I hadn't scored all day, I was still just feeling terrible. I was out of needles, too, at that point. So the only one I had was all bent up, and I sat there for probably like 45 minutes just trying to shoot up with this bent needle. And I don't know what spurred me to do it, but I was just lying on this lawn. And so I just called my mom, and I was like, all right, I think I'm ready to go to detox now. And that started the recovery. My boss, who I work for nowadays, actually is the one who picked me up from detox. So, what do
0: you got? so that is uh, Matt. And uh, uh, Jenny, Matt, uh, I think he's doing well. He's working at a treatment center at this point.
1: He is. He works at Turning Point Treatment Center, and he's been clean and sober for just about five years. I think his five-year anniversary is coming up in about a month.
0: Hmm. He says, um, his, at least his addiction, he says he thinks a lot of uh, people are addicted to, to drugs. It's a primal distress of the soul. Uh, I guess it's a lot of different reasons that we've heard uh, people get into into addiction. Um, Maddie, I think y- your story may be typical in some ways in, in that you went to detox quite a few times. Uh, before before you finally got clean and sober,
2: yeah, I went to detox. I've been a, a bunch of times, and I would say that most of those times I didn't even make it through the detox process.
0: Yeah, and why would you? I guess why did you go in? Were you, did you feel forced to go in, or did you want to go in? And then why did you leave?
2: Well, I mean, each time each time was different, and it's it's hard being in that space because I think. I wanted the drugs so bad and I was so addicted but there was still this just little part of me left that knew I could have a different life that I didn't have to be so enslaved and so sometimes I would listen to that and you know I'd I'd have this bit of hope and and then once I was in the de- detox sorry once I was in the detox process I I just couldn't make it through I just had this you know I just I
1: just felt like I couldn't do it And I think that's what Matt means, actually, Tom, by Mm -hmm. the primal distress of the soul. Okay. Mm -hmm. I think what he was really describing is actually that detox process Mm -hmm. and how deeply sick you are. I mean, I don't think it's so frustrating to me hearing these amazing stories and understanding how deeply sick these people were when they were that deeply in their addiction, yet insurance won't cover detox when you are that ill, um, but they will cover it cover it for other things that you're detoxing from. But you are so sick. And that's what Matt, I think, really means, is mm. it's this primal, distressful feeling that is, as, as he was saying, is almost indescribable and you as maddie mentioned you know that you could have a better life and that it is potentially around the corner but physically you are so ill that it is just you know impossible to really think of anything else
2: and when we look at what's going on with the brain our prefrontal cortex is isn't working correctly and so really the ability to think rationally it just on a on a brain level it's not there and we start to operate from the place of the brain that is survival and so you know i'm in detox and i'm trying to think rationally and i'm trying to think you know i want to do this for the people that love me and i you know i i have passions that i know that i like and i've actually been sober and clean before and i was happy and you know some moments or you know i had a taste of the freedom but I, every part of my being is thinking to survive, I need to have this drug and to feel better. And so it's really, it's interesting because my brain and addicts' brains aren't working correctly.
0: So uh, Jenny, uh, insurance won't pay for detox if it's, if it's what, if it's heroin or?
1: That's correct. If it's Hmm. heroin, they will for alcohol detox. They will for Benzo. Benzodiazepines Mm -hmm. and other kinds because then apparently there is, quote, medical necessity because you can get so sick it can be life-threatening when you detox. And the description that I've had from Maddie and others is you may not die from heroin detox, but you feel like you're going to die. Yeah, (laughs) And so it's just shocking that. Medically, again, we don't value this as the disease that it is, and the medical care that's necessary to treat this disease and get young people well.
0: So, Maddie, if uh, insurance won't pay for uh, detox, what do you what do you do?
1: Well, and
2: that's—I mean—that's where I'm blessed because I came from a family that could help me, and this actually, this issue didn't start to come t- around until recently, so. Um, When I first started trying to get clean, my insurance did cover detox. And um, it wasn't until I think I I don't want to say for sure, but I think it's the last year or two that insurances have just decided that, well, you can't die from heroin detox. So, you know, we won't cover it. Um, And I was blessed that my parents were able to to pay for my detox this time. But, you know, and Paige got lucky because her parents couldn't and she was able to come with me. And um, Revive Detox did a, a deal for us, which was, I mean, absolutely amazing. But there's so many people out there who don't have the resources that I have, and they can't, you know, they can't go, get through detox. And it's a huge fear for addicts to get through this detox and to not be able to go. I mean, it's just, it's, we're probably losing, I don't even know, but we're losing lives through this.
0: I want to talk about that, that the emotions. And you, you, you just, you just see it, you feel it in the film, so... Great job from Jenny, and, and you really feel for Maddie and, and for Paige, uh, everyone involved. Um, there's a scene where, I think it's I think it's you, Maddie, you say you're scared of detox, you're scared of losing Paige. And if one gets sober and the other not, you're scared of that, too.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, it's interesting, like I said before, for me to, to look back from a new perspective, because I honestly didn't see how attached I was to Paige until I watched the film and I was... Shocked. I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't even see it at the time. But, you know, my world had gotten so small, and all that really mattered to me was, you know, I was living in this little room with Paige and with heroin. And that was all I had to attach to. And then on top of that, you know, Paige was shooting me up. And so I think in some way I attached, I'm able to get high, and that is with Paige. And so having to leave the one connection, I think Sarah talks about this, so the one connection that I felt really strongly at that time, which was with Paige and heroin, and having to let go of both of those was terrifying for me.
0: Uh, Jenny, I wonder, talking about treatments and talking about maybe changes in the system, one of the emergency room doctors uh, said something, a couple of things pretty important. Um, he said, emergency room, he or she, I can't remember which, emergency room, ideal place to uh, to initiate services, but services aren't available there, number one. And number two, one of the doctors said, um, using an analogy, would you incarcerate a diabetic who came in with diabetic <laughs> shock?
4: Mm-hmm.
1: I love that line. I love that line, yes. And I think doctors are frustrated because it really is a wonderful opportunity to get patients who come in and triage them in an emergency room and get them help because so often they are there And it's an opportunity for an ER physician to share information and get them into detox, but there aren't the resources. So I think physicians feel as though their hands are tied. And really, the paradigm, we see it as an acute issue. So we see an addict and the need to get them into a quick detox and a couple of weeks of treatment when really this is a long-term reoccurring medical condition that needs support and treatment for many, many, many months and years. And it's something that doesn't need punishment. So we have to move away from the criminal justice model and, as Kristen was mentioning, look at it uh, with a public health lens.
0: Maddie, um, looking at the uh the study guide, by the way, there's a study guide for the for the film. There's important issues. Dying in Vain, um, Jenny McKenzie's film. Um, talk about addiction. It's a disease, all uh, right. And, you, and I think both of you mentioned that earlier. Do you think uh, that that's getting through? Do you think uh, more people are looking at it that way rather than a moral failure? Um, you know, you got to just get over it um, in that you know in in that side of things.
2: Um, you know. I think so. I, I hope so. I So we had a screening the other day here at the library, and we had to turn away 205 people who wanted to come and see the film, if not more. We don't know the exact number, but it was hundreds of people. And so that gives me hope to think that people want to look at this differently. I mean, there's enough people that are, that are suffering and dying and Everybody knows somebody who's struggling with this, and I I want to believe that people want to have a conversation and want to look at it from from a different perspective than what you know people have seen it as in the past.
0: Um, uh, Kristen Munson, uh, you you said you're you're taking a public health focus for for this series, the UPR original uh, series. What what kinds of things are you finding?
4: Well,
3: so. I I actually do really want to underscore that point about addiction being a disease. We had um, a really important report that came out last year by the Surgeon General, and it was addressing substance abuse in America for the first time, and it's over 400 pages long. I read it, and it includes really important descriptions of like evidence-based practices, but at the... At the end of the day, the message from it is basically that this is a disease, there's treatments and there's hope. And so we have to do something with that.
0: Uh, before we go to break, um, Jenny, there are there are treatments, right? There are uh, substitute uh, you know medical tools one one of the people in the film says we have we have it it's called uh, naloxone is that how you pronounce it naloxone
1: mm-hmm. i think naloxone is really one of the greatest public health tools on the market but what naloxone is is naloxone is a reversal from an opioid overdose so oh, it I see. actually so that's for yeah. the that's
0: acute that's for the emergency it, okay
1: exactly but that gives someone a chance to live and that is really really important so naloxone is a very valuable tool and then when people who are suffering from addiction get into treatment, there are many different options out there, and I think one of the discussions that our team has had is that we don't have enough regulatory agencies that are pushing treatments into, as Kristen said, evidence-based long-term treatment that is really going to address addiction and give them the best chance for long-term success. There are many addiction centers that are out there, treatment programs that just, in my humble opinion, are robbing people and taking thousands and thousands of dollars and really aren't evidence based don't have trained people in their program and are seeing throwing people out on the streets after treatment and these people are relapsing so that is those kind of shams need to be shut down
0: and i think probably um Probably what I was guilty of there, I was searching for for one cure all. You know, I was saying we got this, but not not understanding that it's just one part of the puzzle. I'm guessing that's what your experts are would would be telling you, Kristen, that this is it's it's a complex problem with probably complex solutions.
3: Oh yeah, this is it's super messy, and um, and one of the physicians in the film, um, Dr. Jennifer Plum. I also spoke with her. And she and her brother are behind Utah Naloxone and they're the folks um that are trying to bring this important medication basically to everyday people who may be able to intervene, but it is just like you're saving the life, but you have to do something after. That's not the long term. And um there's there are very diff- many different ways of people there's inpatient, there's um there's outpatient services and not everything there isn't one model that works for everyone, mm-hmm. um, but it is important that we do use best practices so we can be using the funds that we are given in a responsible way and trying to actually really help people.
0: Um, Maddie, I, I guess you, you could probably underscore that uh, point as well. It's um, maybe no one solution It's and, and hard recovery is hard is what i'm what i what i hear i guess you could you could tell me yes or no
2: yeah i mean yeah recovery's it's so hard but it's so worth it and um you know i've found what works for me and i i have to sometimes check myself because i'm so passionate about what's worked for me that i want to tell people well you know you can do this too which is true but i've also found that i have so many friends in recovery now and they all do it a little bit differently. And so I agree. You know, there are responsible ways to um, to treat addiction. And there are so many bad places out there. I've been to a bunch and I've you know, it, it really doesn't matter whether it's cheap or expensive. Like you don't know what you're getting a lot of the times with treatment. But, you know, there are also a lot of ways that people find recovery and a lot of ways that work.
0: Let's take a break now. Uh, We'll come back with the last segment uh, after this break and uh, uh, continue our discussion on this uh, film, Dying in Vain, The Opiate Generation. We have with us uh, the producer and director, Jenny McKenzie. We have Maddie, who's one of the subjects of the film. We have Kristen Munson, lead reporter uh, for UPR's original uh, series, A State of Addiction, Utah's Opioid Epidemic. More following this break. You're listening to Access Utime Tom Williams, and uh, we're talking about a new film by uh, Utah filmmaker Jenny McKenzie, Dying in Vain, The Opiate Generation is the name of the film, and she's joining us from KCPW Studios in Salt Lake City. We're also talking with one of the subjects of the film, Maddie, um, and uh, in studio here is Kristen Munson, lead reporter for UPR's original series, uh, a State of Addiction, Utah's Opioid Epidemic. That series begins on UPR. Listen for that uh, a week from today, the uh, the premiere episode, and then uh, running for uh, several weeks after that. Um, and... Uh Ahead of that, beginning today, there's a tour. Utah Public Radio team is hitting the road for a state of addiction, Utah's opioid epidemic. And so today, in historic Star Hall in Moab, tomorrow at the Jennifer Levitt Student Center Multipurpose Room on the USU Eastern Campus in Price, and on Thursday, U.N. County Library in Vernal. Each of those events starts at 5 p.m. with an open house. And uh, then the screening of the film at 6 p.m. Then around 7, 10 p.m. Q&A with a panel of excerpts, experts. And then uh, on the Friday, um, it is the Logan uh, Film and Art Festival. And uh, there will be um, events there, including a screening of the film at 7 p.m. in the Lyric uh, Theater. Let's hear um, our final clip from the film um and and this really drives home the point that uh, we're losing far too many people to to addiction. Uh, Jenny McKenzie, you have uh, Chase who uh, who died and which got access to his journal and he uh, he he, t- he talks about his feelings and the family. You'll hear um uh, the journal and then a sister saying that she wishes she had known some of these things before. Let's hear this. <music>
6: Dear mom and dad, please help me quit doing heroin. I had to write this because I'm too ashamed and scared of actually quitting this drug to ask you for help in person. But here's the honest truth. I cannot quit this drug on my own. I need your help. I'm going to write out how I would like you to help me. One. I need to still live with you so I have people to whom I have to be accountable to. Two, maybe most importantly, I need to delete all drug dealers numbers from my phone and change my number. Three, what I want is to go to a doctor and get help with just the most serious problems. Not being able to sleep, serious anxiety and panic attacks around not using. Please, help me quit doing heroin.
2: He had a lot of demons
1: and struggles that he was trying to work through and didn't really know how to do it. And I think his writing his feelings down has given me an opportunity to get to know him on his real, true, genuine level of what he was really going through internally—that he, for some reason, never felt like he could share with anybody—and um, I think that's a lot of addicts have that same problem because they feel so shameful and bad about being an addict, for one, and you know,
5: you know, doing all the things that they do to get their drugs. So uh, they—they're sad. But again, I would have never known
3: any
1: of that had he not written it down. I knew he was struggling, of course. Obviously, we all did, but he never shared any of that with us.
0: And that's that's just so sad. And then then in the film, Jenny, you you have various family, various Chase's family members express their feelings, um, you know, ranging from anger to to sadness. And I wonder how how do you how do you have that conversation how do you if you suspect someone is having this problem how do you uh, how do you initiate the conversation?
1: Well, I think Maddie's probably a better person to answer that, but I think from the reflections of making the film is don't be afraid to ask and say anything, and it may not come out perfectly, but just share with the person how much you love them, how much you care, how worried you are. I mean, it was just it was tragic for the Saxton family burying their twenty-two-year-old son. And I I don't think I've really ever witnessed or experienced as as someone observing that kind of grief. And they they wish they had read that journal before he died. They wish they knew that he was imprisoned by heroin. And he couldn't even share that letter that he wrote with his parents, again because of the shame and stigma. But Maddie, what do you think? I mean, what's the best thing to do? How do you get that conversation going?
2: I mean, I think you're right, and I think when trying to have a difficult conversation, especially about that, it's just about being really honest. And usually, when someone wanna ha- wants to have that type of conversation, it's coming from a place of fear, a place of care, a place of love, and. Um, you know, if I needed to have that conversation with someone today, I would just say that. I love you. I care about you. These are the things that I've noticed. This is the evidence that supports my concern. And I want to let you know that I'm here for you and that there's resources and you're not alone. So, you know, I think just, I would just get in touch with that intention and have an honest communication.
0: Yeah, I think, Maddie, that was one of the, you know, a key key scene in the films, I've said before, that conversation with your father. One of my emotions was, okay, at least she's still... Still has that connection, so that's, yeah. So that's good.
2: Yeah, yeah I, I'm, I'm really lucky that my parents just never gave up on me, you know.
1: And I just can't underscore that enough. I mean, don't give up. These people are human beings, and they're trapped. And, you know, heroin has possessed them. It's changed their brain chemistry, and they are wonderful human beings who want to live so don't give up
0: Uh, one of the uh, people in the film that said something that really struck me uh, i can't remember her name she's she's talked about uh, utah culture she said uh, some of this is cultural we in utah we don't talk about things like this meaning in this case you know serious drug addiction
1: That's Dr. Jennifer Plum, actually, that Kristen has actually interviewed also with Utah Naloxone. And I think she just puts it out there in such a great way, which is I think our entire culture across the United States doesn't want to talk about things that aren't pretty. But I think there's added pressure here in Utah and anywhere where there's organized religion and that that is a part of your culture that you have to fit in. And you really only talk about things that are perfect and pretty and you fit in that mold. So if there's something that is a worry or something that's flawed, like addiction, it's closeted and that's really our hope is to talk about addiction. Bring it
0: out of the closet. What what would you say about this, Kristen?
3: I I definitely agree and um through some of my reporting, I I sat down with Brian Besser, who's um, head of the DEA here in Utah, and he really echoed a lot of that sentiment that um, he sees prescription drug abuse as being deeply cultural here in Utah. And one thing that I thought was was really interesting from our interview was he's not convinced that the opioid epidemic is going to burn out here the same way he thinks it will in some of the Eastern states. And he's concerned about that because um, we do kind of have these added pressures of of not necessarily speaking up when we have a problem. And that's right now what we need to be doing is speaking up. And that was why it's really important to me that to do this series is is so that we can talk about it more and just... Like have those difficult conversations because that's the only way people are going to get well.
0: Mm. Maddie, uh, several people in the film talk about self-image as being uh, you know important, and maybe this gets into um, you know c- culture and how this can can affect uh, this image. And uh, several people in the film talked about shame versus guilt. You know, g- guilt is healthy. We're, I'm doing a, a wrong thing. I can correct that. But we don't want to get into shame, which is I'm bad. And it, you know, if I'm bad, then you can't really correct that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your recovery. Um, let's see. I think it's Matt in the film. He says you have to learn again how to live your life. He says he has to he has to relearn how to you know all all the healthy things. And he says some days are hard, some days are better. Uh, what about your recovery?
2: Yeah, my, I mean, some days are are still hard but most days are really good and it wasn't that way for a long time and it's weird because I look back and especially seeing the film it's like I was full of that shame and I don't think I was necessarily capable of fully feeling guilt or um, in the way that is talked about as being healthy in the film because I was so just full of shame and part of my recovery process has been um, being released of that shame and and when i first got clean it was so hard and every single day was a struggle and i spent months just wanting to get high and holding on for for dear life and white knuckling it and um and then slowly i I finally had to make a decision. Like, do I want to be free? Do I want to be happy? Because just being clean, it's it's not enough. And so I've really been able to dive into doing a lot more of the emotional work and therapy, and having a support system, and um, looking at my belief systems about the world and about myself. And it's it's been a process. And yeah, I mean, some days are hard, but um, I spend most of my time feeling pretty pretty free, you know, and. Um, and now i get to do this this film which has been at times difficult but i i hope that my darkness has purpose and so you know now i live a life full of of purpose and service and um so i'm really blessed and it's just a journey like you know everything is so
0: well it's uh, it's wonderful i'm really glad you're you're in recovery um so just a few minutes left here um maybe Maybe starting with uh, with Kristen, I want to look for some some takeaways. Any surprises in the reporting that you've done done so far?
3: Um, I think for me, one of the things that's been surprising is um, a question I've asked people is like, "Have we turned the tide?" And to be honest, a lot of people say no, and that to me is is alarming and. Um, and just shows that we have a lot of work to do. And yeah. so that's, for me, been, to be honest, the biggest surprise mm-hmm. is that we've, we have so much for, like, further to go. Yeah.
0: Jenny McKenzie, uh, the, the reaction to the film has been has been good. A lot of If you have to turn people away in a screening, that's, that's a lot of interest. Um, what's the biggest thing you hope people take away from, from the film, from this project?
1: I really just hope people continue to talk about it the film is just, it's just a film. It's just one documentary. And the I, we need to make 10 more. We need to saturate the marketplace. And we need to really help people understand what a crisis this is. But what I really hope the film does is I hope it creates community conversations. And I hope it is a tool and really a catalyst so that people can talk about these things and and have these conversations because if we can start to have these conversations I think then we can really contemplate change
0: I'll give Maddie the last word what would would, what's your biggest hope when you know people view the film have discussions like we're doing now what uh, what what perception do you hope gets changed what do you think what do you hope people take away
2: um, so my personal hope is just that I can be an example for people who are struggling. I mean, we've talked about how big this problem is, and there's 21 million people in America right now struggling with substance abuse. And so, you know, people see the film, and it's graphic, and it's, you know, disturbing. And But there's 21 million people who are having the same or similar experience that I had. And And so I just hope for myself that I can be an example that people can— they can get free of this and you know there's there's a light at the end of the tunnel
0: well we'll uh, end the discussion out of time here very important discussion we've been talking about a film dying in vain the opiate generation a film uh, directed and produced by jenny mckenzie she has joined us from kcpw studios in salt lake city and uh, one of the subjects of the film uh, maddie has joined us as well uh, thank you to you both
2: thank you so much for having us thank you tom
0: And uh, Kristen Munson, who's lead reporter for UPR's original series, uh, which is called A State of Addiction, Utah's Opioid Epidemic, has joined me in studio. Thanks so much.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: And uh, that series will begin a week from today. It will begin on October 9th, a Tuesday. And ahead of that, there are some events happening this week. And uh, so the uh, events with this uh, UPR uh, original series, A State of Addiction, uh, begin today. Um, in Historic Star Hall in Moab, then tomorrow at Jennifer Levitt Student Center Multipurpose Room on the USU Eastern Campus in Price, and uh, finally on Thursday at the Uinta County Library in Vernal. Each of those events has the same schedule, 5 p.m. Open House and Ice Cream Social, 6 p.m. Screening of Dying in Vain, and 7, 10 p.m. Q&A with the panel of experts. And Jenny McKenzie and Maddie will be there at all of those events. And then they will be coming back to Logan at the Block Film and Art Festival in Logan. And there will be discussion at 5 p.m., a screening of the film at the Lyric Theater at 7 p.m. You can find all this information at upr.org. And thanks for listening to Access Utah Today.